Today I want to talk about something that I think is going to stretch you, alarm you, um, challenge you, puzzle you, uh, make you afraid, uh, but I think it will also awaken something in you that you will walk away from here today and go, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to know what that's like. I want other people to know what that's like. Now, um, if you, I know, I know nobody in this room saw the movie Jackass. I'm, we are too cultured a, a congregation. But if you did see the movie, or if you ever, just skipping through the channels on, and you find MTV, I'm sure none of you ever do that either. There is a disclaimer that they put up before each episode of Jackass. So I want to read it to you. It says, Warning, the following show features stunts performed either by professionals or under the supervision of professionals. Accordingly, MTV and the producers must insist that no one attempt to recreate or reenact any stunt or activity performed on this show. Yeah, that stops a lot of young kids from doing that. Unlike TV, and unlike MTV, I actually want you to do this stuff. I want you to attempt this at home, kids. I want you to film it as you attempt it. What I want to share with you today comes from the story. Uh, it's one of the most beloved stories in the Bible. It's uh, called the story of the prodigal. It's a parable that Jesus told. How many of you are familiar with that story? Okay, just raise your hand. Good, okay. If you could get your Bible out, if you have one with you, uh, and, and open it to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 15. Now, if you don't have a Bible, the chair seats under, in front of you have paperback Bibles. Uh, they look something like this. Some of them are dog-eared. And my old pastor used to say, nothing I like to see more than a dog-eared Bible. I'm from Texas, so I have to give you that little bit of an accent there. It's uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And <clears throat> let's read the parable, and then, then we'll unpack it and look at the, uh, the story. So it starts, let me find it here. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could finish his rehearsed speech, the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Dancing. <laughs> so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll unpack this. Uh, Lord, thank you for this uh, amazing story. Uh, it came as it were, from your very lips. And uh, we just ask that you, would, as, as we heard it in this last moment, that now that you would begin to help us to understand it. And more importantly, uh, everything we understand, help us to apply it and make it a part of our lives and, and hear what you have to say through it today for us. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, this is a story of, of two prodigals, not just one. But let's look at... The, kind of the sweep of it. The, the son, the younger son, gets his inheritance, right? And he splits and takes off and just kind of and just squanders it, just loses everything. Comes to his senses, second act, comes back, and his father uh, welcomes him, and there's this dramatic welcome. And then, uh, in the middle of this dramatic welcome, the, a party breaks out, and then uh, the other son comes in to the story, and the, and the other son is angry. The father goes out to him. So you see the father going out to one son and welcoming him and going out to the other son and pleading for him to come into the house. So this is kind of the story. Now, Jesus told this story for one simple reason. He was, he was hanging around with a bunch of people who were notorious, and so the, the more you know, upstanding citizens in the community said, you know, if you're a prophet, what are you doing hanging around with these people that are no account? You know, they're troublemakers and they're not faithful to God, yada, yada, yada. And Jesus said, well, let me tell you why. And he told three parables. Well, at least that's how Luke uh, frames the story. So he says, uh, and, and each of the parables basically had the same point. Something that was really valuable was lost. And the person who lost it went to great lengths to find that which was lost. And then once they found it, they had a party. Each of the parables do that. There was a person uh, who lost a sheep. There was a, a woman who lost a very valuable coin. And then there was a father who lost a son. And the point of the parable is real simple. It's not the main point I want to make today, but it, it is that, that people, we, matter to God and that people should matter to us. I mean, that's the simple point. You can, if you ever, someone ever says to you, what's the parable of the prodigal mean? People matter to God. Now, we may look at that and go, okay, I get that. You know, I know I matter to God. Yeah, I don't think we all know how much we matter to God, like that song we sang. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm never surprised anymore when people have a really deep personal experience of God's love and how overwhelming it is, and how surprising it is to them. Because whatever you think you understand of God's love, uh, you've just barely tasted any of it compared to the depths of the love he has for you. So in this parable, we have you know, another illustration of that. But that's not the point I want to make. What I want you to see is a, a principle. A principle a, 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 about a, a practice that we need to integrate more effectively into our relationships. This story shows us something, besides that main point. I think that there, it, it illustrates a, a simple principle. Without connection, there's never change. Okay, when you go home, I want you to understand, I want you to remember this point, and, and how it applies to your life, and how you can apply it to your life. This young man's life was just... You know, this was an example of, of people behaving badly. And when he came home, he had messed his life up, and he really had pretty much conceded that I've squandered any hope I have. And 
He was willing to just become a hired hand, like a day laborer for his father. He didn't have any hope that he would ever be welcomed back as a son into the family and have any, any part of the family again, which, you know, in their culture, when you're outside of a household, you are really, you're messed up because households were a community, and that's where life happened. And if you were outside that, you're on your own, and the world was a very cold, hard place. It would, in a sense, you're homeless. And so he's saying, I don't want to be homeless, but I don't deserve any more than that. So could I just come and work for you? Because where I've been, I remembered, and it was so bad where I was, I remembered how well you treat your workers. That you feed them and care for them and, and respect them. And where I am now, there, there's nothing like that. And so I want to know at least you know, kindness again. I know I could never hope to be part of the family. And he was going back home with, you know, like trying to, to bargain with his dad and hope his dad would, you know, be willing to even talk to him. Because as scholars who study the, the culture around Jesus at this time, most, what, what made this parable, it's, to us, it doesn't seem that surprising. You know, we just think, well, it's cool. You know, who wouldn't welcome their son back? Maybe, you know, you give them a little talking to, or maybe, you know, there's some other kind of conversations you have, but who wouldn't, if their son or daughter that they were alienated from came back, who wouldn't want to have them back? Now, you know, that might, that, it might not always play out sort of as neatly here, but, you know, you would hope, we think that's the way our culture is. We want, you know, we want to see the story have a happy ending. But this parable and that culture was as eye-opening as you could ever imagine because there isn't a dad in the world who would have acted like that in that culture. Because what the son did, humiliated his father, affected all the people in the household, probably affected the whole community because the father would have had to... It wasn't like he had... Uh, people back then would have an estate... The estate wasn't liquid as we say it today. In other words, he didn't have a money market fund with cash in it. And when it was time to cash out the son's inheritance, he could just go and write a check and give it to him. He would have to get rid of part of his estate. He would have to sell it to, to give the money to his son. Well, part of that estate would be in you know, animals and livestock. And when you sell that, people that are working for you lose their jobs because that livestock isn't there anymore. And all of a sudden, those people's lives are affected. And I mean, there's just this ripple effect throughout the community. It affected the father, affected the son, his older brother. So this wouldn't have been a happy moment. And the community, probably, when, they, when the son came back, there would have been people in the community who wouldn't have wanted him to even come into their town. So this, is a, this, this parable, in their ears, sounds really different than it does to us. Because we've, you know, a lot of us don't appreciate how much the Bible has permeated our culture and changed the way our culture is. We just think this is normal. But this isn't normal. This is not how people act in most of the world. It isn't. Not that people don't love their children. Not that people don't care. But forgiveness is a pretty wild idea. And so I want to talk about something that's kind of found in this parable that's really crucial and really important for us, but it's, like I said, it's challenging. And I think some of you, as I explain it, you're going to go, hold on, I don't, I don't know if I can buy this. I'm not sure I can go there. I mean, this is a wonderful story, but what you're saying, John, without connection, there's no change? I don't know. I'm not sure it works that way. So let's unpack this. The father... I want to tell you what it means to connect with other people. Why it's hard to connect with other people and then how to get started connecting with other people. In the middle of this story, the, sort of the, the moment that is the most eye-catching was when the father greeted the son who was returning. That is the, that's the, that's the, that's, it's not the only dramatic moment in the story. Because the end of the story is also a dramatic moment, but it, doesn't, it has an, an unresolved ending. 
the parable ends with you don't know. It's sort of a cliffhanger. But this part of the parable is dramatic. It's powerful. But what the father did is what he's, God, I think, trying to model something for us that's consistent with his character all the way through the Bible. And especially as you look at Jesus, this parable is displaying how God wants to relate, how God relates to us, but it's also displaying how he wants us to relate to one another, right? Remember, we always talk about the cross, that the cross is, is the message that reconciles us with God and with one another. It teaches us how to relate to God and how to relate to one another. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus is the one that, that introduces us to that life, makes that life possible. He's the perfect embodiment of it. And the way that Jesus related to people, and I'm not going to give you any illustrations of him doing it. I'm going to give you one real life one. But I think if you know your Bible at all, you can begin to see that this really is, this, this connection that the Father made is exactly how Jesus related to people. So what does this mean? I want to, I want to assert to you that we have to learn to connect with people on an emotional level when they're in a mess in a way that we're not typically very aware of our need to do. When uh, there's a really good book about child discipline by uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel, and he uses this phrase, connect and redirect, as sort of the centerpiece of this whole book. And he just talks about how uh, our kids, when we, when we discipline our kids, when we train our children, because that's what discipline is, we, we're supposed to have two goals in mind. One, we're supposed to have behavior modification. We want them to stop throwing a fit. We want them to stop beating their brother with a hammer. You know, whatever it is, right? That's, that's always a good thing, to, by the way, to have your children stop. Don't beat your brother with a hammer. But we also want... I'm sorry, didn't... Didn't go. <laughs> uh, we also have to have in mind longer-term goals, life skills. With each moment when we're interacting with our kids and trying to discipline them and train them, we're trying to prepare them for the rest of their life, not just that moment, right? Uh, can you get this little ring out? Maybe it's just in my ear. So what he says is something that if you ever had children, or when we've all been someone's children, but we haven't always experienced this consistently, but when kids are misbehaving, it isn't because they typically, they've just set out, I'm going to be ornery. I woke up this morning and I haven't been ornery lately. I think I'm just going to disrupt the day at the store. I'm going to wait till mom has her hands full with something and I'm just going to drop the tantrum bomb right there. You know, in the middle of Kroger's. Our kids don't do that, you understand? Now, you, you may think your child does. Probably doesn't. They get tired. They get frustrated. They, they have emotions inside that are too big for them. They can't handle them. And we look at them, and, and you know, we're in the pressure of that moment. Our kids kind of going haywire right here, and everyone's looking and going, I wish they'd get that child under control, you know? If that was my child, I'd be beating them within an inch of their life right now. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's what my grandmother used to say. She would tell me. We'd go into a store, and, and I was never a misbehaving kid, but my, my grandmother would say, if you misbehave in this store, when I get you home, I will beat you within an inch of your life. <laughs> but she said it with this southern, she was from Oklahoma, this kind of Oklahoma way, and, uh, and she would, but she would look at me. My grandmother meant business right? And so I just would go, okay, you know. And I don't care how freaking out I am inside, how my, big my emotions are. I know my grandmother would do it. <laughs> and so I'm just like walking around like a little, you know, a little android <laughs> just following her. But that's not the way you help a kid because I, I didn't typically misbehave around my grandmother, but I misbehaved around my parents. And you know, sometimes our kids will misbehave more around us than other people. It's because they trust us. They feel comfortable with us, and they can let stuff out around us that they won't around other people. But when they blow up, they can't resolve the big emotions they feel inside, and so they start acting out. We have to connect with them in a meaningful way and help them calm down. That's how 
the behavior, now there's lots of different other things. They may be doing something, you know, that's destructive, but at its essence, we have to connect with them. If you've ever had kids, you know that this is how it works. Now, we don't always, we don't always keep that in mind. And, the, and then the way we connect with them is supposed to help them for the rest of their lives. In some small way, it contributes to them understanding when you feel this way, what you're supposed to do instead of doing that. And it, that's a sensible way to raise children. And, and, and most of us stumble across that here and there, but we don't typically grab a hold of that. Well, that's how God relates to us, whether we really recognize it or not. And this father, when he saw his son coming back, just a wreck. He'd wrecked his life. It was his own fault. The father didn't come up with a list of, do you realize you did this and this and this and this and this and this and this? Did he? Let me read it to you again, what it says. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. Now, that's not how, when my kids misbehave, I don't, I'm not immediately filled with compassion for them. I'm irritated at them. When, when, when someone in my life, an adult, starts blowing up, they're, they start misbehaving, behaving badly. My first instinct is not, oh, compassion, I'm going to run towards you, right? He's, Jesus is assuming none of us feel that way in the middle of it. Do you get it? And now, every once in a while, I will feel that way about my kids. And it's not that I don't love them. I'm just meaning we're human beings. When someone is, you know, going nuclear in front of you, you don't tend to feel excited about that moment. Even if it's in your home, you know, in the privacy of your home, where you can't beat them within an inch of their life. You don't want to do that. You want to be under control. But you know, all of us, if, if you ever had kids, we've all parented badly at times. And as adults, we've all behaved badly at times, right? I know that. I don't have to ask you that. I know all of you. You've all done that. Sometimes you've done it in front of me. I've seen it. It's embarrassing. It's frustrating. And I don't always feel excited about that moment. And I'm sure the father didn't either, but he got in touch with something because this parable is modeling why Jesus hung around with those people. Remember, that's the context. Jesus hanging around with gnarly people. So when you're in the presence of one of these gnarly people in your life or one of the people that you love that starts acting gnarly in that moment, this is what you do. This is the first thing you do. He says, it says, he was still, while he's still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And then the son rehearsed his speech, and the father said, Hold on. He got his servants, and they just lavished him with love and acceptance. Now, that's not what his older brother wanted to happen because when he heard about it and he heard what his father did he was really frustrated he was angry and in the story the older brother just like most most stories the characters represent different people the father represented god or represented christ the younger brother represents the prodigal kind of misbehaving people and the older brother represents the moral upright people and we, the moral upright people, tend to look at the people behaving badly, and we do that same thing, don't we? Like, yeah, this guy, we need to take him out to the woodshed. You know, throw a party for him? Yeah, you, I'll throw him a party. <laughs> you, you bring him out to the woodshed, I'll give him a party, he'll never forget. But his dad had already started the ball rolling and, and just lavishing grace on him. And the brother was mad. Now, I want you to understand, this is where we start, but it doesn't have to be where we end. Nobody likes it when other people behave badly. And let me tell you a secret. Everyone lean in and listen. When you behave badly, people feel the same way. They feel the same way about you that you do about them. We forget, we lose sight of that. So he did four things here that 
you, that people are taught in, in counseling training are really crucial for helping people change. See, the point of this teaching, again, is without connection, there's no change. The father connected. The older brother didn't want to connect. And I think, as I've heard other people say, the father ran towards the son because he wanted to connect before the son, the younger son, who'd been behaving badly, met all the other people who were mad at him and got the wrong message from them and sent him back into behaving badly again. And so the father ran out there and did this. And the father did four things. He attuned with his son. In other words, he read his son's emotions. And what do you think the son's emotions were at that moment? Shame, depression, guilt. I mean, just think, you, all of us have been in that place. He just felt horrible. And he's got his head down. He's probably not even looking at his father. Don't you, don't, does, isn't that sort of the, the, the posture that you take when you really feel bad? You just, we just look, I, just, I can't even make eye contact. His father went up and grabbed him and, you know, get buried, picked him, hey, you know, and I think he, he, he put his hand, his face in his hands and looked at him. And his son rehearsed this speech. But he did these things first before his son could even hear. So, again, there's a lot in this narrative. And, and, and you may say, John, I think you're reading into this. But let me tell you the four things he did and let you just see if, if it fits. This is what people are taught in, in, in counseling training, that you need to do this. You need to attune with people's emotions. You need to figure out how do they feel and then you need to connect with that. They need to know you connect with it. It needs to show in eye contact. It needs to show in your posture. It needs to show in your tone of voice. Uh, it needs to show in your facial expression, your intensity, your response. You need to draw those people into a community of love and support. Isn't that everything he did here? It's a classic example of attuning, of connecting. He just, and see, the incarnation is God who made us, and we went our own way. As wrong as that was, He came into our world and took on flesh and blood and connected with us and lived out the struggles and the things that we all face. He didn't call us, you know, you come where I am. You sort things out on my timetable and my agenda, according to my agenda, and then maybe I'll have time for you. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. He came to us. This father did that. Secondly, he listened. Do you see what he did first? He listened. That's why in James 1, James, who was one of the 12 apostles, wrote, Let everyone understand this. The anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. Could the father have been angry? Yes. Could he have expressed that anger? Yes. But if he wanted to redirect his son, if he wanted to see his son change, he couldn't meet his son with that. Now, I'm not saying there's never a time to be honest and be angry. I'm just saying as, as a way as a course of action, doing what the Father did here is, is the way you connect. And does it cost us something to attune and to listen? Absolutely. Well, you're going to find, if you, if, you, if you think I just raised the bar to a point where you go, I'm not sure I can ever reach that bar, it's going to get higher. The next thing he did and this is something that this, you may, it may take you some time to sort this out. He validated how the son felt without judging him. He validated him. Now, how do, you, how do, you know, how do I know that? I'll tell you a second. Let me, and his response, what counselors are taught to do is to reflect back what the client is demonstrating, like how they feel. If they're really uh, afraid you acknowledge, or it, you, you attune with them, and then you say, really seems like you're afraid. And 
what are you struggling with? And you try to understand your tone of voice, genuinely. So you attune, you listen, you validate without judging, and then you reflect it back. Now, the validating and reflecting back shows he got his son. He did, he, his son, well, in what he said, his son was taking responsibility, but his son really wasn't ready to change. Do you understand? Because change can't come without grace. If God doesn't give us grace, we don't change. But what? Even what he said, I believe, in, in his bargain with his dad showed his heart wasn't quite ready to be part of the family. Unless his father had done this and connected with him, he would never be ready. Because people who are behaving badly are in this reactionary bad place. And to receive grace, you need to be receptive. And that connection the father made with him is what made his heart open. Because both the son, the younger son and the older son, weren't ready to come into the house. Do you understand? That's the father's goal. That's God's goal with us. Reconciliation, connection, relationship, depth. Life comes from God. It comes from being connected to God in this deep relationship we can have with Him through Jesus. We can experience God our Father's love that everybody talks about. We can't experience it generically, like just by going out in nature and enjoying nature walks. And I mean, you can see that love, but you can't deeply experience it on a day-to-day, week-to-week, moment-to-moment way, except through a relationship with Jesus. And so this Father is modeling this. And so when He says to the son, or says to his servants, go get clothes and a ring and shoes. He's responding to what he sees his son needs. His son is saying to him, I don't feel like I deserve to be your son. So what did the father do? He showed him what the son was longing for. He gave it to him. Now, the gospel is in this, in this way. The father... His reputation would have been ruined because he accepted this son back after all that the son had done wrong. So the father was saying, Take, I'm taking the shame that everyone's going to heap on you. I'm willing to bear it to give you something you could never get on your own. And that's the good news. That's the gospel that Jesus does that for us. He bears the shame of all of the ways we behave badly and the way we violate God's will and His law and all the, all the judgment we deserve, it fell on Jesus. The Father represents Jesus in this parable that way. But out of that, bearing that burden, He gives back to the Son what the Son couldn't get on His own. He, he, he validated His Son He said, oh, you know, in a sense, you feel worthless. You feel unloved. You feel rejected. And and he didn't say it verbally. and He could have said it, but he validated his son and did this for him. Reflected it back in what he did for him. Do you see that? You make that connection? And so what happened? This young man... His life changed. He became part of the family again. I mean, that's the happy moment in this parable. That's the, like, the moment when people were hearing this. I think you probably could have heard an audible gasp, like, <gasps> he what? He did what? And then the other son comes in the story. We'll get to him in just a second. So I have a good friend who told me his own version of this parable, how he experienced it. I have a good friend. Uh, years ago, he began to ba- behave as badly as I can recall anybody I've ever known behave. And he told me how someone did this for him and how, because they connected with him, he began to change in a way he was never willing to change before. So, I'll tell you the brief story. Uh, I don't want to give you the details in case. I don't think it, probably. Well, anyway, I just don't want to tell you details. So, uh, the names are changed to protect the guilty. 
he was in a lot of trouble. And he didn't care. And so one of his friends called him, heard about it, called him and said, hey, let's have lunch. You know, and he was reluctant to get together with his friend because my friend, let's say his name is Sam. Sam didn't want to be around Christians. He, he wanted to go to church. He didn't want to talk about God because he was, you know, he was the prodigal going the other direction. And so his friend, Tim, called him and said, Let's have lunch. Well, he finally agreed. Tim kept calling him. He finally just felt guilty. He had lunch with him. And to his surprise, Tim just asked him, Sam, what's going on? I heard like this, your life's blowing up. And, and he said, I just want you to know right now, I'm not changing. And he said, that's what I told him. He said, don't give me the Christian stuff. Don't tell me I'm wrong. I don't care. And he said, Tim just looked at me and said, okay. And just listened, and, and, and he said, well, why, why, why is it, what's going on in your life? And, and he started talking about the mess he was in and, and the mess he'd made of his life and all the people he was hurting. And all that his friend Tim did was listen to Sam and just say, man, that's horrible. I'm, I feel for you that you're in this place. And, and he said, my friend Sam said, every time during the lunch, like several times during lunch, he said, don't try to tell me to stop. Don't try to tell me I'm wrong. And he said, he, he said, I'm not. He said, you know, well, you know, you know what's right and wrong. I don't need to tell you, right? You know, this isn't a good way to live. I'm not going to, I just care about you. I want to listen to you. And he did that. He attuned to him. He listened to him. He validated him. And he reflected back what he heard week after week after week. And my friend Sam said one day, now he was also seeing a counselor who was doing the same thing. He was a Christian, but the Sam was going to see a counselor just because he was depressed and really hurting. But, he, you know, he was the, he was the uh, architect of his own misery. And so the counselor saw that, but the counselor was doing the same thing. Well, he said, one day, I just realized I'm the architect of my own misery. What am I doing to myself and all these people that, that I care about and that care about me? And he repented like beyond anybody I've ever seen repent to this day. His whole life, I mean, it took him a while to unravel the mess he'd made. But he repented as deeply as anybody I've ever even heard of in my life. And God put his life back together in a way that to, to this day, I'm, I'm, a, it's a, like a, I'm, I'm amazed at it. And he just called me recently. That's why I'm telling this. He just called me. I said, what's going on, man? He doesn't live in, in uh, Ohio anymore. And he just told me the whole story. And I, wow. That is really cool. But it was a perfect example. Without connection, there's no change. Because his friend Tim could have sat down and wagged his finger at him and told him everything his conscience tells him every day. But it wouldn't have made, the, it wouldn't have had the impact on him that connecting with him did. Because here's the, here's the simple truth. When people are at their worst, that's when they need us the most. And this idea that we're supposed to push people away is not the gospel. Even church discipline has been practiced poorly because when people think that you treat people who really go off the deep end by shunning them, God didn't shun us. Jesus chased us. The Father chased the Son. The father chased the younger son. He went out and chased the older son. God loves us. He's pursuing us because he wants a relationship with us. Now, it doesn't mean there's no consequences for people that behave badly. It doesn't mean that we don't draw boundaries. It doesn't mean that, that we don't hold them accountable. But if we don't connect with them, how are we ever going to be there for them when they really want to put their, the pieces back together? Plus, God uses that love to teach them a lesson that they matter to him. Even in the midst of their sin, they still matter to him. Because you can't, you can't see this story and not feel that. I mean, you can't not feel in the story this father loved his son. But it cost him. Do you understand? It cost him. The, the son squandered what the father worked hard for. Then the father gives him more. And he's not even sure he's not going to blow that. But he welcomed him back. But he connected in this way first. Right? Now, I raise this bar. 
what I want to do is say, how can we live at that level? I want to look at the third son and just, just draw us to a close. You may think, I'm not sure that that's the way that God really relates, because that sounds like enabling, right? That sounds like enabling. This father, he's just lucky the son didn't just take everything he gave him and just run off again. Well, that's always the risk when you love people and you connect with people. There, there's no guarantees in love, is there? Is there anybody here that hasn't hurt someone and been hurt by someone that you really loved and that loved you? No, there's no guarantees in this. But this is the normal life we're talking about. The life where we're disconnected and we keep each other at arm's length and we're all grown up and sophisticated and wearing masks. That's not the world that God made. He said, unless you become like a child, you can't see the kingdom again. And the older brother is outside the house, okay? And it says at the end of the story, he's angry and he refused to go in. Now that's a, that says something to you. What did the father do? The father went out and, and listened listen to the dialogue and see if you can hear in his voice. If you think that you need to really give it to people when they're in this place, try to put that tone on this conversation and see if it fits. Do you understand? So... The father went out and pleaded with him. And that Greek word, pleaded with him, means to call alongside, to give comfort. The father sees the son in his reaction, his angry action. He's pulled away from the father's love and life and everything that the son needs. And the father pleads with him, calls him back to that place. You see that? He's calling him back to that place. And he says, all these years, he answers his father, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate. But when the son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. Again, here's what the father said. Did he say this in this connecting way or do you say this in this angry I want you to know that how you know wrong you've been kind of a way that, that we tend to think is really important so that we can hold up moral standards so that we don't compromise and enable he said my son you're always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours is dead now he's alive he was lost and he's found I don't think he would have had that kind of tone of voice do you you, you see that? He connected with this other son too. He attuned with him. He knew he was upset. But he listened to him. You see, he listened to him. He listened to him. There's a dialogue there. And then he validated him. He says, I know you're angry. I know you're upset. You think I don't care about you because I care about him. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. They're together. And then he reflected it back. But the, the parable ends with you don't know what the older brother's going to do. The father was calling it to live like the father lived. And the, the father wants you to have that kind of relationship with him. Because here's the key. You can't show to others what you don't experience. Now, none of us get this perfectly from one another. That's why I'm bringing this point out today to say we need to start practicing this in our relationships. And we do it hit and miss, but it needs to be much more intentional and a conscious part of our lives. If we don't connect, we can't change. If, you're, if you don't connect with your kids, you can't help them change and grow. If you don't connect with your friends when they're behaving badly, you can't help them change and grow. If we don't connect with them, a lot of times they can't connect with God because we represent God to them. And so this interaction between the father and the older brother is, again, just another reinforcement that God wants to have this relationship with you. Now, here's the thing. When people stay away from God, it's, it's not good. And so God pursues us. But that, the staying away part, there's something inside us that has to get resolved, has to be addressed. 
And at any given moment, we're not in the best place in, you know, internally. And when we're like that, we tend to want to stay away from God. We, we don't tend to want to open up to Him. And we don't think really that He's going to meet us. Because when we give our kids time out, you know what we're saying to them? We're saying, I don't want to be around you unless you're behaving in a way that makes me happy. Do you think your five-year-old goes to the timeout and thinks, I need to think, I need to go through a period of deep moral reflection about how I'm behaving. No, they're just thinking, my mom and dad, you know, don't love me. They're mad at me. How about we change timeouts and make them time ends where we keep our kids close to us when they're being disciplined. Because we don't want to send them mixed messages that I only love you if you perform the way I tell you. We want them to know that they're loved, period. We want to discourage behaviors, but we can't discourage behavior if there's a rift between us and them. We have to listen to their heart. Have you ever seen your kid really misbehave? And when you get them close to you and you hold them, they just, all of a sudden, boom, this whole defiant thing will just break down. They just cry and they're just, you know, overwhelmed and you hug them. And then all of a sudden they're happy again. That happens many times. We've all experienced that. We've all experienced it as adults with God. God does that with us because he connects with us. So you can't, the thing is, we have to keep getting this over and over and over and over because the fall which the Bible describes is a consequence of entering, sin entering into this perfect world, affects everything. No matter how loved you feel by God today, tomorrow you need to experience it again. So, I want to ask you just for a second to do a little experiment with me here. And um, all the small group leaders and prayer team people, if you guys could come up front, we're going to pray. And... One of the hard things for us to do in these moments where hypothetically we want to connect with God, but practically we're like the older brother and we're reacting to God. And we're not always conscious that there's this reaction going on. But what in effect it does is it keeps us at a distance from God. And, and we really aren't away from him. We just feel away from him. You know what I mean? I, I, don't, I, I, I don't know if you guys get what I mean. <laughs> I can't see your, everyone's faces. But you know what I mean? It's like, I'm really upset, and I really want to get closer to God, and I need to feel closer to God. I need, for his, I need to be bathed in His love, but I'm still angry. And also, with that angry, I know I shouldn't be like that. And I probably don't deserve, you know, to connect with God. But God wants you to know... He wants to attune with you. He wants to listen to you. He wants to validate how you feel and reflect it back to you and talk to you. And then he'll help you change. But he wants to meet you that way first. Now you can go through the Old Testament Psalms and you can see this over and over and over. God gave us those prayers to teach us how to pray. And that's what they did. They talked about, it, it, this is, my wife always challenging me with this. She said, John, if you're not talking about how you feel with God in prayer, you're probably not praying very deep prayers. Because if you look at the prayers of the Bible, look through the, all the Psalms, they're full of emotion. Because you can't connect with God unless you open your heart up. And what is in your heart what's really going on in your life. But we've attached our emotions with bad things. And so we don't like to talk about those things. We don't like to feel those things. But God says, if you bring those things to me, you will connect with me in a deeper way than you ever have before. And every time that that's happened to us or we've really connected with God, that's been part of that moment. So we need to start doing this intentionally. And, and not backing away and being angry and saying, I'm not going to do it. Whatever our feeling is, it isn't always just anger. There's, we can be sad, we can be angry, we can be tired, we can be afraid. There's, there's lots of emotions that we can be trapped in, and we think, I've got to resolve those to connect with God. 
That is how you connect with God. You can feel guilty and connect with God. You can feel angry and connect with God. I mean, there's, you could start wherever you are. That's the gospel, okay? That's the gospel. So what I want to ask you to do, just for a moment, uh, where's the worship guys? Just one. Adam, come up. We sang that song, uh, Humble King, and it really connects it with, with, uh, along this theme. We need to experience God connecting with us. That becomes the foundation of us connecting with other people. Okay, that's, that's your takeaway. With no connection, there's no change. But this is mysterious, especially to men. Right? Men, the range of men's emotions, angry, sad, hungry, bored. Right? That's it. Maybe, maybe only uh, angry and hungry. We, we think we have, you know, women have all these crazy emotions. I'm just glad I don't. I just get angry and I'm hungry. No. You have all the ones that women have. You just, you just experience them differently. You experience them differently. And you're not, you've not been taught to be in touch with them. That's what my wife's always saying. John, you tell the Lord this stuff when you're praying. And I do, but she's, you know, she's my wife. She's supposed to remind me of things. And, and where are you at right now, today? Now, you may be sitting here and thinking, I don't, I'm not having any, like, raging emotion going on, but you've had some this week. You may have had some this morning. You may have had some walking into the building. You know, most married couples fight on their way to church. Right? I don't know about you. Kathy and I take two cars now. We, we learned a long time ago that's how we solved the arguing on the way to church. Because it is, there's spiritual warfare that's a part of this too. Besides just being human. But where are you at? I want to just pray and, and, and we're going to close the service just quietly. And Adam's going to play that song. And I just want you to close your eyes for a second. And he's going to sing it through one verse through once because I think you know the song well. And I want you to just ask the Lord as he's singing that song and you're listening. God, what's going on inside me right now? And in what way am I like the older brother and I'm staying outside the house? This thing, this anger, this whatever is keeping me away from you. It's somehow keeping me from, from not connecting with you. And I want you to come connect with me. So you've got to identify that feeling first because I'm going to ask you to do something else with, with it once you do. So go ahead, Adam. Adam.